we've been looking at um, the church, and uh, for the past, I think, eight or nine um, sermons regarding the church, we've been looking at um, the book of Acts, and I'd like just to turn to this same chapter, chapter two of Acts, and we will go deeper. Last week, we spoke a little bit about the church as a household, thank you, Lisa, in which God raises up and builds up the next generation. And in many ways, it's very easy for us as a church to uh, lose sight of the fact that the church is a household in which um, the, the Lord is raising the next generation and spiritual children in, uh, in our midst. And we talked a little bit about that in terms of heritage. I want to say that whatever your, your family background uh, you have had, in Christ, a new beginning starts, and we can start a new heritage, not by our own volition, but because of what God has done. And so I happen to have had um, a privilege of having three generations before three, yeah, three generations before me who were Christian, and uh, they were brought to the Lord by missionaries uh, from America, actually. And that's why I, I feel I owe America something. That's why I'm here. <laughs> it's time for people like Stephen and Mary and myself and many others who to come back who owe a debt of gratitude to the West for the, um, the, the, the gospel that was given to us. And uh, I always uh, find it really intriguing when uh, during daily prayer, um, they, uh, Stephen would come up with a, a hymn that nobody knows except those of us who came from overseas. <laughs> uh, these are Western, Western hymns, but perhaps a little bit more ancient. And I, when I mean, most of the, the hymns that we are singing actually are not that ancient. They are actually from the last century, maybe uh, from the 20th century or the 19th, not that ancient. But anyway, I, I find that uh, my family uh, has been really blessed and I try to share a little bit about how God can actually do that for all of us, starting from this generation, right? You don't need to have a, a, a long history of uh, fervent Christianity or warm-hearted Christianity. You can start today because everything is new in Christ, amen? And we will talk about that as part of the Apostles' Doctrine today. But let's uh, have a look at this. Um, we will be reading chapter 2 of Acts. And we will read it from um, verse 38, and then we will pray. Okay? Peter said to them, I'm reading from NRSV, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will, be re you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. What baptism means is that a death has occurred to you, your old life, so that you are immersed in the water and buried with Christ. <clears throat> so repent, being baptized, means not only having an intention to change, but to, but to be dead to your old self, to your old, old agenda, your own self-will, and to be alive with Christ. It's the, only way, the only way in which you can experience a new life is through death. And so that, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, our, of Jesus Christ. So that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we said that um, the response to Peter's sermon was a response to the offer of the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit was a promise, verse 30, that is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. So that is the response. The response was a positive response to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And everyone in, um, in that, in that um, crowd of people understood enough to know that the Holy Spirit was the promise of God that marked the new age, the new era uh, of God. For the promises for you, verse 39, your children and for all those who are far away, everyone whom the Lord of God calls to him, verse 40. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them saying, save yourself from this corrupt generation. For those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, 
and to the breaking of bread and prayers. So there was a response to the coming, the gift, the promise of the Holy Spirit, but it was also a response to the corruption or the, what we called uh, a few weeks ago, the untowardness. Yeah, the untowardness of this generation. The, the generation that, that cannot, is not capable of moving towards God or towards that which is good. Always moving, uh, having, experiencing a current that takes you further away. The corruption is an untowardness in in sense that there's a force of corruption that's, that's there. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, in these days. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Verse 42, it's a response to, on one hand, the coming, the, the, the promise of the Holy Spirit and, the, and the, the, the resistance to corruption. Verse 43, all came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together, in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people, or favor of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your presence here today. We thank you that the church is not a static structure of, of uh, erstwhile activities that we do that have been done many, many years ago and are still being done. But we thank you, Lord, that in the midst of um, you, you, your presence, your church is built. And so we ask you that today that you will do a work among us. Make us a household, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that household awaits us. And you are building the house, Lord. So we ask you that even now, you, you would... Uh, Give us your spirit in immeasurable uh, quantity that our lives will never be the same again after today. We bless your name, Lord. We welcome you. Praise your name, Lord. Praise your name. Amen. Amen. So we were looking at these two streams. One is the corruption of the world and one is the coming of the Holy Spirit. I'd like to talk about this because the coming of the Holy Spirit is very powerful. Um, but there's, a, there's a, the other side of it, right, which has to do with the, the resistance to corruption. Yeah? The, uh, the, the epistle of, of Peter in chapter 1 says the, he has birthed us into an inheritance that is incorruptible, reserved in heaven for us. Yeah? It's incorruptible. And there's a way in which corruption is something that we are we are sometimes unaware of, but it's going on all around us. Uh, when we were looking at, um, um, we're following the sport. We see this in sports as well. It's the, the, the ideal in sport has always been the, amateur, the, the ideal of the amateur, where you do sport for the love of it. Yeah? The love of it and not just for winning. The whole idea of being sporting is that you put upon yourself uh, good ethics and morals and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and kindness and generosity in the face of an opponent, correct? Um, my children always made it a point after they had finished a race, whether they won or lost, to, give, to, to, to shake hand, the hands of, the, of the, the one in the lane on the right and on the left. That's part of sport. Uh, and uh, nowadays, because sport has been taken over by corporations and it's a money money thing then that the sport of sport is lost the sport has become corrupted in many ways right you see you see this and uh, it was very interesting that um uh, i don't know whether you have this in uh, in america but there is a way in which you still see spots of sport spots of sport in sports when you think about cricket and uh, those of people like um, uh, Callistus and Rajiv and Sanjeev and all that will, will understand this. And in cricket, you have a thing called walking, and you walk to the pavilion. If, if you're a batsman, and the, and, the, and the bowler imperceptibly grazes your 
your uh, your trouser leg with the ball and and you miss and the umpire doesn't see that you are actually out there's such a thing as walking and uh, many of you well not many of you some of you know Brian Lara Brian anybody know what Brian Lara he was um, he was amazing he was a great legendary cricketer but uh, he shocked everybody when the umpire said not out but he walked and he said no I'm out and he walked uh, just recently, um, in one of the soccer matches, um, I th- West Ham was playing, um, I believe it was, uh, it was uh, Everton. And um, one of the West Ham players were, were, were kicked and they were injured and they were, he were doubled up. And the uh, Everton goalkeeper, uh, no, the, and Everton, one of the Everton players had the ball and had a distinct advantage. And what he did was that he kicked the ball out so that uh, Aaron Cresswell, the West Ham uh, defender, could have treatment. So sometimes you see this in sport. But the corruption of the world has to do with the fact that, that, that this is very, very rare. Don't you find? We were talking uh, with uh, the children's ministry about how today, even in business, it used to be that businesses was small business. Small businesses, the, the, the small shop was, the, was the, 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 the normal thing that you would get your goods from, is from the small shop. Nowadays, it's very different. It's all uh, big, uh, uh, what do you call the big box uh, companies that are actually wanting to eat up everything and have world dominance. But uh, recently, we were, I think uh, Cindy and, and the children were at Steve's Pets in Altadena, getting uh, uh, supplies for our guinea pig. Our guinea pig. And she saw a, a, a bundle of, um, I think, bedding, right? Bedding that was pretty expensive. It was like 40-odd dollars. And, and, uh, and the, the, the person who was working at Steve's Pets, a small store, said, don't get that, get the smaller one. Get the smaller one, and it was much cheaper, right? Huh? It was bigger and it was cheaper. That's really sporting, isn't it? But what we have today is these small businesses have been taken over by the large businesses, these corporations, and what the corporations want is very different from what there was in, 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 a, in, in, a, in a community st- kind of mode of small business where in small business we help one another we help one another right it's for the benevolence of the community but in new in in, in this new mode of business what we have is this human nature has seeped into capitalism to such an extent that large companies whether it's amazon or, or facebook or whatever it is they want nothing less than world domination you have huge CEOs of huge com- uh, companies. Their vision is no longer to bless, but world domination. And as a result of that, they demand your loyalty. They are going to get your loyalty. And it's very interesting that the corruption of this world, the way in which entropy actually happens is that um, 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 in this move in business to dominate the whole business, whether it's uh, borders, I remember borders, uh, or, or, or um, we shall not mention too many names, lest we get cancelled. <laughs> um, but you have this way in which the rational economic thinking, and, and I remember, remember studying economics when I was in sixth form, is that the rationality has to do with dominance. You actually dominate. The, 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 the business. And so what you have is this, the move towards a one-stop shopping. True? What companies, many companies want is one-stop. I'd be the one-stop. So you have um, companies that sell, that used to sell one particular product. Now they are selling more and more products and all that. That's not bad. It's actually very convenient. And I'm not necessarily saying that these are morally bad, but the point is this. With the move towards that, there is a trend. 
there is a there's a groove towards a one stop kind of a source for groceries or for tech stuff or for everything. And you go to, you can go to Amazon for everything. I I, I I won't say what I think about Amazon, but you understand what I'm what I'm talking about. Yeah. Now here's the corruption. The corruption is that we want convenience. And so we buy into that one-stop thing. We, want, we buy into a one-stop source of information. We want, to, we want one source, just ask one person because of the convenience and all that. It's very interesting that Julian, uh, sorry, uh, Aldous Huxley predicted that would happen in Brave New World. Aldous Huxley predicted that we will become so seduced by comforts and sensuality and convenience, that we would rather have the convenience of making things easy so that society will begin to have flabby moral fiber, flabby moral muscles. And as a result of that, what happens is that something gets into us because of the fact we don't have the ability to work harder. And so whether it is the loyalty to a particular a news outlet or a particular product or whatever it is, it's always easier for us to do that. I don't believe that that is actually morally wrong. But you can see how it can play into, into this, right? So the question, of course, is, is the future going to be like 1984, where there's forced totalitarianism, or is it going to be like Brave New World, where it's not forced, but it's a more seductive thing? Maybe you can think about it. But there's a way in which we ourselves can allow ourselves to be seduced by our own comforts. And then we misplace loyalty to one thing. And that's where, um, have you heard of Francis Bacon? He founded the Royal Society. And the Royal Society has, uh, as you, you, apparently, my, my, my dad has gone into the Royal Society. You enter into the, into the lobby, you have something written in Latin, which best crudely translated will be not on anybody's say-so. Not on anybody's say-so. So check it out. Always checking it out. Always using rationality in it. There's a way in which, we, there's a, in which the world is tending towards entropy. Whether, whatever area it is, it can happen in theology, it can happen in English, it can happen in language as well. Um... Francis Schaeffer talked about how language, even in theological language, uh, we, we, with uh, the onset of liberal theology with Bultmann and, uh, and uh, von Harnack and all that, what happened was that the need to be able to make a bridge to the outside world was so strong and the, and the, and the lack of confidence that theologians had on the truth of, of the Bible was so strong because of the influence of you know, um, modern liberal theology, that traditional scholars began to have less and less confidence in the Bible. But to make a sort of a parity and to make um, um, a bridge to the outside world, liberal theology began to actually use the same kind of words from Scripture that the world would make. But the whole content, the whole meaning and the whole semantic uh, uh, content of it was lost because of the fact that before, not, before in, 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 in the past, when the scripture talks, speaks about the word love, it is very clear, it's well defined. It is love that is of God. Yeah? When it speaks about righteousness, it speaks about peace, it speaks about well-being, it speaks of welfare. It had very clear understandings of that with the... Uh, um, and with liberal theology, there became a new mysticism in language in which language was not sp- used, words were not used for their, de- their definitions, their clear definitions of what they meant, but by their connotations so that you could use words like the presence of God and mean anything. And so as a result of that, what we have is corruption of language as well. So when we say love is love, we don't mean, we, we don't exactly know what we mean when we say, and when we use theological words, 
they can often mean a whole plethora of, of, of meanings. Um, and uh, theologians use the word, they call it neologizing. You use the same word, but it can mean many, many different things. And its, its meaning begins to be kind of watered down and begin to be um, uh, dissolved on this. I just, I'm just mentioning a few ways in which there is a, a way in which entropy and corruption actually comes in. It's not there because, just because it's, we are in the modern age. It's always been there. Yeah, it's always been there. And so as a result of that, sin actually brings this about. And when, Paul, when Peter is saying, save yourself from this untoward or this corrupt generation, untoward moving in the wrong direction generation, what he's saying is this, this is not something that is a contemporary situation that we are facing. It's just something that is because of human beings' sin. There is something of the disease that's in the first Adam, made in the image of God, but yet corrupted. And it's actually been tainted by the presence of sin. Amen? Okay, let's move on, okay? The church was a response to this need for the Holy Spirit and for the need to save ourselves themselves from this corrupt generation. And so let's have a look at this. We'll move on further. Verse 41, for those, So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. Verse 42, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. There are these four things that um, commonly we see as the as essence of the aboriginal church, right? The primitive church. And that is, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which are the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. We'll spend a bit of time on these four important elements of church, yeah? They are dynamic, uh, and they are very, very important. But I'd like to especially, um, um, before we go into the apostles' doctrine, talk about the devotion, right? The word, they were devoted they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And uh, the word devoted is very interesting because it involves a certain intensity, involves a certain place. Proskartereo has to do with uh, uh, a devotion that has to do with committing yourself to something, Stay, staying in one place, uh, persevering, being committed in such a way that... Um, that thing to which you are devoting has authority over you or has power over you. When they were devoted, they were not autonomously choosing things that they want to do and, and, and choosing the apostles' doctrine that they wanted to, to, um, to they, they would choose for their own uh, benefit. They were devoted, and as in they submitted themselves to it. They committed themselves to it. Does that make sense? So they were devoted. And there's a way in which that word devotion is the spirit with which we look at the, the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, prayers, and the breaking of bread. There's a way in which their approach to do those things was in devotion. It's in devotion. And there's a way also that the church was in some ways together. They, 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 they together, they spent a lot of time together. They were working on something that the Holy Spirit was doing. They were not there in principle, but they were involved in the doings of the Holy Spirit directly. So when they devoted themselves to it, they were actually involved uh, integrally in a space in which Holy Spirit was working these things. This is very different from uh, our tendency to think of church as the repository of resources for our spiritual life lived outside. What they are saying is that, true, there was a life in the land that they were in, but there was a way in which it flowed from a certain special thing that was taking place in the body of Christ. Does that make sense? They were doing this so that their witness would not be corrupt and also that their witness would be Holy Spirit infused, Holy Spirit empowered. And so they devoted themselves to this. And I'm thinking about this, this move that we've been seeing in our in our church, especially when um, the, uh, Scott was talking about this event that we are ha having, where we're thinking of the church as a household, in which in this household, the way in which we are, we are fitted together 
is a really, really important part of what the Holy Spirit does. And I want to encourage all of you to be a part of this, to be a part of the household of God, not just be a part of the building or the, the, the doctrines that we are promulgating from the pulpit. I'm, I'm inviting you to be a part of something that God's doing to fit us together. Amen? I have no idea how He's going to do it. I have no idea. It's going to be a mystery, but it's going to be supernatural. And so as they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, there was a certain thing we often call community. Community. They are devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine had to do, and then fellowship and, uh, and, uh, and prayers, all that, involved something that was more than just in principle. It was something that was in action. There was a physicality to that. And I want to invite you to just be a part of this and see what the Lord does. Who knows what He will do? It's going to be a mystery. It's going to be something that I believe will be very surprising. But I believe that God is going to be doing something because, we, as we said before, church is the following of what the Holy Spirit is doing in real time, in a timely way, not just in principle, not just in theology, but in action, in something of an action of the Holy Spirit, something that is happening in real time. And I want to invite you to just sign up for this and be a part of this and seek God about this because it may be that you're involved in something that the Holy Spirit may say, I'm fitting you differently when November the 19th comes. Maybe that the Holy Spirit will give clarity or he'll give us revelation, but it'll need to be something divine. And so, it's funny that in the midst of this, while these things were happening, we as Christians, modern Christians, will tend to think, okay, this is the blueprint, this is the manual for how to do a church. We've got to have all these things, point one, point two, point three. But what they, what they sometimes forget is the fact that in the midst of this, it says, and the Lord did sign many signs and wonders by the apostles. Now, that you cannot repl replicate. That you cannot put in a manual. Because the church is a happening. It is a happening of God. It's not a happening of man. It's a happening of God. And church is we following God in a timely way, not we deciding how church should be. Yes? So every time we come together, we have to watch what God's doing, see? We have all kinds of expectations of what church should be and what the, what the manuals say and how, what the, uh, our doctrinal, uh, denominational polity says, it should be this and everything in order and all, all that. Whether it's charismatic order or Pentecostal order or Methodist order or, 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 or this order, <laughs> sorry. Um, the Lord is actually moving. And it's this following of the Holy Spirit that constitutes church. Constitutes church. So I want to invite you to be a part of this. Yeah? I'm very excited about this. I, I tell you, I've got to tell you, I've never been as excited about VCF as now. I've been here for a long time, you know. Long, long time. I've seen a lot happen. I've seen a lot happen. And there's a way in which what has happened in VCF is nothing compared with what I have seen. But I am more excited now than I have been in all my, may I say, 40 years. Nearly 40 years of, of ministry. Because God is afoot. He's on the move. And church is going to be like nothing like what we know now. If not, then church is just a fossilized structure. Yeah, it's dead. And so, let's have a look at this in that light. The dynamic of all that is happening is not static. It is devotion. Relating to it in a certain way, yeah? Okay, let's have a look at this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Or the apostles' doctrine. They, are, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. And what is this Apostles' Doctrine? What is this Apostles' Doctrine? What is it, this thing that they devoted themselves to? The Apostles' Doctrine, so the idea of 
of, um, of the, the apostles' teaching is not that they came for Bible study all the time and they availed themselves to the study of the Word. That's not what the apostles' doctrine, the word doctrine or teaching is. Yeah? The, the apostles' teaching was a body of teaching, a body of New Testament truth, a body of truth that changed everything. And you can find this from the Gospels all the way to Revelation. And the Apostles' Doctrine can be seen in Peter, you can see it in John, you can see it in James, you can see it in, uh, in Paul. Paul perhaps is the most eloquent and most clear um, teacher of this doctrine. This doctrine that was mind-blowing perhaps not fully understood even today. But it's this doctrine that made Christianity in its New Testament form completely a new and different thing, which makes it powerful. Which makes it powerful. I wonder whether you have as a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a while, ever wondered, why does it not seem that powerful to me? Why does it seem to be only a struggle? I wonder whether you've ever felt, felt that. Why does the Bible think, talk about Christianity in the New Testament in a much more triumphant way? Not triumphalistic, but triumphant way. As if there's something, something powerful about it. And it's not so much of a drudgery, not so much a difficult impossibility. Yeah? Have you ever wondered about that? Have you ever wondered why it is that some people experience Christianity as something that's constantly manifesting God's power, God's help, and God's grace, and God's love. And there are some who just feel that it's just a drudgery. It's just, I just got to take inches. And the inches that I'm making, that I, the inching along that I'm, 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 I'm doing, doesn't seem to have the mark of God on it. It just seems like all my own effort. I wonder whether you've ever thought about it. I've always, I, I thought about it many, many times uh, in my, as I was growing up in the church. The apostles' doctrine has to do with the fact that something happened on the cross to us that made life completely different. If you can turn with me to Romans chapter 6, we will talk about the apostles' doctrine. Just try to, try to sum, it, sum it up in a way that um, that doesn't take too long. Okay, you ready? Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 1. Perhaps Romans chapter 6 is, a, is the quintessence of all the, all the New Testament teaching, all brought together in a condensed version. What shall we say then? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? No, because in chapter 5, it was talking about how even... As sin abounded, grace abounded more, right? And Paul is saying, does that mean that, well, that since grace is enough for my sin, then I should sin more so grace might abound more, right? He's saying that that's the logical kind of uh, uh, conclusion that some people will have. Um, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that sin grace may abound? And then he says, by no means. Or what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Okay? By no means. How can we who die to sin go on living in it? What he's saying is this. You wouldn't be asking that question if you have died to sin. If you ask that question, then you've never known the new life. You've never been born again. By no means. How can we who have died to sin even think that way. Give me an example, okay? This is, this is a very trivial example, but when I was, when I newly got married, or around the time I was getting married, I had friends, and they heard that I was going to get married. And they told me, you know what? Before you get married, this is your last day of freedom. You can do anything that you like. 
Okay? You can do anything that you like. After you get married, you'll be tied down, you'll be in prison and all, all that. So Michael, what do you want to do? It's one week before you get married. <laughs> Live it up. And I listened to them and I thought, what are you thinking? How can I think that way? I am in a totally different state of mind than you. When I had children, I heard the same kind of thing. I was babysitting my babies, my baby actually, Kaylin, with someone else and we had gone to the beach who was another father. And I knew that he did not want to babysit his children. Can you imagine a, a, a father calling, calling and babysitting? That's totally wrong. A father doesn't babysit. True? Someone, only someone who's not the father babysits. Correct. So he kept on talking about babysitting. He wanted this moment to be over. We were at a conference and so our duty was to take care of our own children. And he talked about it as if being with my children was a burden. And he assumed, okay, this is going to be over. Ten minutes more. Then we can be free. And I honestly told him, what are you thinking? You don't want to be here? I told him, I honestly want rather be with my ch- kids than to be in the conference. <laughs> I, was thinking, I was thinking, I was thinking, you are of a different species. And I don't know how to help you. The only way in which I can help you is to not give you reasons why it's better for me to be with Kaylin, baby Kaylin than to be at the conference. It would not work. Paul doesn't even give an argument. He says, by no means. How can you who say you are dead be thinking this kind of stuff, right? I have seen men who are married talk about pornography as if it is their right. Or it is their release or their freedom as a positive thing. I want to ask them, what are you thinking? Who are you? And I don't mean this in a, in a condemning way. It reveals to me that you are not born again. You're not born again. I don't mean this as a condemnation. I'm saying there is a born again experience which if you have you would not be thinking that way. Does that make sense? And what Paul is saying is this, there are ways in which we can react and respond to God which no men's fellowship, no men's accountability group can solve if you are not born again. No preaching, no inspiration, no... Um, no uh, rousing teaching can save you from that if you are still the first Adam. The Bible speaks about two Adams. One is the first Adam that sin and is corrupt. It will go corrupt, corruptly. It cannot help it. It's made in the image of God, but it's not enough that it's made in the image of God. If you try to apply the scripture or the preaching as the first Adam, the first Adam cannot apply it. It will take all the supernatural things and it will reduce it to something small, something piddly. Does that make sense? What Paul is saying is this, there is no way you can disciple yourself into the kingdom of God. Something must happen first. And what Paul is saying here is this, when Christ died on the cross, you died. That death was given to you. Death was imparted to you, administered to your first Adam body, the the body of sin. Does that make sense? That is good. That is good. Because unless the old nature dies, the, 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 the first Adam dies, the rest of Christian life cannot be lived. You're living your, your Christian life, you're trying to apply the word of God as a first, living in the first Adam. That, that first Adam was planted to the ground in Christ 
when Christ died on the cross, your first Adam nature was put upon himself. When he died, you were crucified with him. Only Christ's death, the death of a God, could destroy the power of the first Adam. Because the first Adam is subject to sin. It's subject to all those things that I, I have been mentioning before. Many Christians are trying to live the Christian life in the first Adam. It may be inspiring. The words may be inspiring. The words may be give you a lift and, 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 and kind of give you a, a nice new angle to these things. But it's still the first, if it's still the first Adam who's trying to apply it, it's not going to go far. It's going to become, everything's going to be all human, human works. It won't bring in, it won't open up the life of God. And what, what Romans chapter 6 is saying is this. By no means, who, how can we who die to sin go on living in it? May I tell you, you cannot die to sin on your own. You can't. You can't put yourself on the cross. You know, the cross is like this. You can't sort of put yourself on the cross. You can't overcome death by yourself. You can't overcome the, the nature of sin. You cannot overcome the... The, the, the first Adam by yourself, you can't. The first Adam cannot carry the anointing of God. It cannot. It's completely bankrupt. And when you think about every weakness that you have, every failure you and I have had in the Christian life, it's the failure of the first Adam. No amount of support grouping will change it. No amount of community, pastoral counseling or therapy will, do, will, will change it. Because all that, as long as you are indwelling the first Adam, is part of the body of sin. You need something different. Just like those men that I was talking to needed to be something different. No therapy or no support group would change that. I've got to tell you that. The Christian life is impossible to live unless someone else is living it. Someone else who rose from the dead is living it. If that person who hasn't risen the dead hasn't, is not living it, then whoever whoever's listening to this message is doomed to fail. You cannot apply everything that we've spoken about from this pulpit, from the teaching, from the Bible, to the first Adam. It doesn't work. Many Christians are living the Christian life in the new, new covenant in the old Adam, the first Adam. And so I wonder whether some of us find that it's very difficult to overcome sin, overcome addictions, overcome depression, overcome loneliness, overcome because of the fact that we're trying to apply all this Christian thing, but it's the old Adam, it's the first Adam that's trying to do it. And the more you try to do it, you get some help because we're made in the image of God. There is something human about it, something almost glorious about the human beings because we're made in the image of God. So there's no way you, I want to poo-poo this. But in terms of living the life that God has for us, the life that God sent Christ for, it's completely failure. It's completely bankrupt. So it's, it's better we, that we just acknowledge it and say, I fail. It's impossible. No matter how inspiring these words are, no, no matter how inspiring the preacher may be, it's all actually in vain. Because the first Adam cannot live the life of God. And that is why the New Testament is also called the New Covenant. Where Jeremiah said, there will come a time in which a new covenant will be wrought. Ezekiel 36 as well talks about that. A new covenant. Not like the covenant which you could not help but breaking, but a new covenant in which I will put a new spirit in you. You become a different person. You become a different person. Only a different person can apply this. You cannot do it. First Adam can't do it. Only the second Adam can do it. And so the Old Testament saints looked forward to that day when there was be a new covenant. The New Testament is just another word for the new covenant. Testament and covenant, the same word. The same word. 
the new covenant. You, may co- you can just as much call this the new covenant. In fact, some many old Bibles, you won't see New Testament. You'll see new covenant in it. Because the new covenant had to do with the fact that God will do what no human being could do, that he would take upon himself the first Adam. And so that on the cross, the first Adam was imposed, pressed into himself. So much so, he died. And because he is God, we died with him as well. Praise God, huh? Praise God. So give up. Give up trying to get inspired by, by, by sermons, right? Forget about that. It doesn't work. If you're applying it to the first Adam, you're saying, oh, no, okay, I can do this now. Okay, now I've got a new insight. I can do this. No, it won't work. Only a new, color, new Adam, the second Adam can do that. And for that to happen, what Paul says is, here, is, here is this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? When you become a Christian, you died. You were immersed into his death. Does that make sense? That means all the good intentions, all the made in the image of God stuff that you may, you may be hoping will give you some hope, died as well, was immersed into him. All the arty stuff, all the science stuff, all the sports stuff, all the good stuff, all the glorious stuff, all the high achieving stuff, all the good attitude, all the hard work, all the kind of great work, work ethic, all that died. It is not enough. If you don't see this, then you, will, you, you, are, you are living something that's not a Christian life. No matter how much you call it New Testament or no matter how much you use the Jesus' name in it. Therefore, we have been buried by him by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Woo, hallelujah. Praise God. When I realized that, I was full, sin sick. I was sin sick, you know. But God helped, as the hymn says, my helpless estate. When I began to realize that I cannot live the Christian life. I can't live it. It's impossible to live. What I have been trying to do is to listen to sermons and get some little nugget so that that nugget will tell me how I can actually live better or can live. I wanted some key. What I needed was not a key. I wasn't need, I didn't need the, 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 the insights of a, a great preacher. That's not what I needed. I did not need some inspiration so that I'd come back the next Sunday and get pumped up again. What I needed was a change. I needed the old, old Adam to die, to fall, to fall, to fall off me. And I couldn't do it myself. I couldn't do it for myself because I couldn't escape the corruption in this world. I know it in me, myself, you know. Even as I've talked about sport, I know the evil in me when I watch competition. I'm so competitive, I just don't want to talk about it. I know, I know that. I know that there's a part in me that if given full reign, if I actually just talked about it, is so competitive, it's dangerous. But that part died. I couldn't kill it. But Jesus did. And if I believe it, I accept it, it becomes true. I have to accept it like a little child. I need to be devoted to it because the only way I can have the mind of Christ is not just to keep on telling myself I have the mind of Christ. No, I only have the mind of Christ if my own first Adam was let go and not tried, and I don't try to improve it or to, to heal it or to rehabilitate it. I have to let it go. So if you are trying to find value for yourself and what you're trying to do is to value the first Adam, I would gently ask you, just forget about it. It's not going to work. The first Adam is subject to corruption. Whether in sports or in business or in our dreams. Our dreams are subject to corruption. But God's destiny for us is not. His call for us is not. 
Your dream may be subject to corruption, but God's call for you is not. I have no good thing in myself. Amen? I have no good thing in myself. And so to become truly a Christian, it is incumbent upon me to be able to accept the fact that I died to my rights, to everything else, that my own agenda, my own attempts to improve myself or to become an example, uh, example to my children, it's not going to work. And to receive the fact by faith that Christ took out of me the first Adam. And in this same body, the same body that may be overweight, that may be full of scabies or maybe have all kinds of problems, I may have high blood pressure, put the new Adam in there. Put the new Adam in. And because of that, the, 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 the second Adam is the life of Christ in me. I live unto that. Any attempt to try to live or to apply Scripture to the old Adam is bound to fail. And that is why I think sometimes you have many Christians who are trying to apply the Word of God, just applying, applying, but they're applying it in such a human way that what comes out of it is nothing supernatural. It's not that, it's not that exciting. They're applying it like a non-Christian would apply it. They're applying it like anybody can apply it. But when it's applied to the new Adam, then miracles happen. Amen? And we live, I'm crucified with Christ. I am. I didn't need to crucify myself. He crucified me. So I'm free from that. I can step out of that old, old ragtag thing and step out of it. And if I believe it as a child, I begin to live as if that is true, then it becomes real. It just happens like that. That's the apostle's doctrine, yeah? Um, Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism, verse 4, into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been, who have been united with him in the death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him, so that we live the resurrection life. Oh, hallelujah. Whew. You know, when I used to read this when I was in college, there's just so much words. It's just like, oh, so, just couldn't even get through that. But now when I read it, it's just like it makes my mouth water. We know that our old self was crucified, was crucified. Amen? He did it, was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin for whoever has died is freed from sin. Oh, wonderful. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Hallelujah. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion. Isn't that great? Don't let it. It's almost as if you have a choice. You have a choice. Don't let it. Don't get close to pornography. Don't get close to those moments in which you will, you will be tempted. Because you can come out of its gravitational pull. Because its power is broken. You're still human. But its power has been broken. Amen? Praise God. Isn't that amazing? If they didn't understand that, they would never be able to save themselves from the corruption of the world because the corruption was inside them. And the great thing was this. When I discovered that, I didn't know that it would be so simple. It just meant reckoning myself dead to sin. And never strong feelings to sin came, I just reckoned myself towards God. By faith. You have to do it like a child. I don't know how the, the mechanics work. I don't know how, how the complexities work themselves out. But that's how it works. Amen? So that was the apostles, uh, the apostles' teaching. I'm not against accountability groups, by the way. But the primary thing has to be dealt with first because if it's not dealt with, if you don't know who you are in Christ, that you are 
a new creation and that the old, old, old stuff has been actually killed, crucified on the cross. You can do all the accountability groups and all the kinds of teachings and all that and all the books that you read and it will not do that much good. I won't say it won't do any good, but it won't do that much good. Amen? I would put it to you that the apostles' teaching was the summation of the whole New Testament by which Christ in us caused us to live the Christian life, not by ourselves anymore, but by the new person. The old person cannot live that way. Amen? And so because of that, it is because of this that when we say we have died to Him, we can say, I can be devoted to prayer, I can be devoted to church, I can be devoted to the life and the fellowship. I can be devoted. Why? Because I'm set free from my own fear of losing my freedom, from my fear of being discovered. I can be freed from it. I can be devoted. I can be not afraid to be part of the church. I don't have to isolate myself. I don't have to live an isolated life in my lonely autonomy. When I, am, when I come to church, I don't have to live a life in which I am relating to my brothers or my sisters in such a way that it's always trying to project to them how good I am or how important I am or how uh, sanctified I am or how just I am or how uh, a great father I am or how spiritual I am. And this is where I want to put it to you that actually what God has done is to cause us to come into the body of Christ freed up from that because it's possible for us to desire community, to, go, for, to, to, to desire to be part of the body of Christ too much. And what I mean by too much is in such a way that desire for community is so that community can fill something that is missing in me. And that is why sometimes we find in church people who they can't really be devoted to fellowship because everything about their existence is a lonely existence. What do I mean by a lonely existence? I'm going to be finishing soon. Yeah? A lonely existence is one in which your, your every relationship with people is so that you can impress them or that you could hide your shame. You need them, but you're lonely. And because of that, every relationship you have, everything that you say to people is so that they will accept you. And sometimes in church, we see that. There's a certain loneliness. There they are people who want fellowship, they are, but they're constantly feeling disconnected, always disconnected. Have you found that? And the reason why we're disconnected is because there is shame inside us. There's a, there's a desire to be accepted, but we are afraid that we will not be accepted if we are exposed, if our true self comes out. And so it's very ironic that many people who desire fellowship actually are very lonely because every time they have fellowship, they do it in a very lonely way. What do I mean by lonely way? It's like, I am by myself. I have to keep negotiating these relationships, which I need, but which I have to constantly, on my own, project an, an image or a, or a persona of acceptability. I'm afraid that I will not be accepted in the church. And I want to just put it to you, that when Christ died for us, He died for all our unacceptability. He died for all that. And He buried it in the sea of His forgotfulness and put a sign there, no fishing. Amen? I want to invite you to be part of this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine in such a way that it was free. It was free in such a way that they had no fear of shame. They had no need to work hard to put their best face forward with the brothers and the sisters because they knew on the deep side, you know, the deep, deepest self that they had died. 
and Christ was in them. And he was their life. When Christ, who is our life, will appear, we will appear with him in glory. Amen? Let us pray. Perhaps you've come to church for many years and you've struggled with the things that have bound you, what we are called the life of the first Adam. And someone said you just need to be authentic and you need to be honest. And for all the authenticity and the honesty that you try to muster up, you still feel bound. Because those things don't actually heal you. Just being brutally honest doesn't heal you, actually. Being authentic doesn't heal you. Even being accepted by a very non-judgmental church doesn't heal you. The only thing that heals is something that has already happened. That on the cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for you. So that you, in and of yourself, the you that has always tried to apply all the preaching and all that to yourself, or the Bible or the books to yourself, died, actually, that died too. But not only that, that was that the end of the story, but when he rose from the dead, that life of Jesus was spread abroad to every one of us. And the coming of the Spirit meant the coming of Christ's life to replace the old one. Hallelujah. Praise your name, Lord. If you have never experienced that, I want to invite you to just lift up your hands before the Lord and say, Lord, into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in to stay. Come in today. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. I die to my own pretensions, my own dreams, my own images of myself, my own personas that I have tried to craft so carefully that have never measured up. You know the insecurity, the sense of rejection that I have, the fears, the lack of overcoming of sin, the bondages that I have. I thank you that on the cross 2,000 years ago, you dealt the death blow upon it and cut it at the root. And I wonder whether you could imagine with me that you, together with Christ, were crucified on the cross. You took your place so you don't have to take the punishment of that. The sheer agony of him was on your behalf. He was put in the grave Buried in the tomb, so were you. That old life, that life of failure was put in the tomb. The corrupted life could not be improved, was put in the tomb. When he rose from the dead, that old life did not rise with him. He rose to a new life. And if you accept that, you will live a life in the new Adam. Praise God. Hallelujah. We bless your name, Lord. Glory to your name, Lord. We welcome you, Lord. We surrender all, Lord, to you. All to you, my blessed Savior. You who saw my helpless estate and shed your own blood for my soul. We thank you, Lord, that all once, every one of us here, no matter what state, no matter what history we have, can go out of this place completely new. So we bless you and we thank you. Hallelujah. Let's go ahead. Just lift up your hands if you feel you're saying, yes, I surrender my life to you and I want yours, Lord. Jesus, we acknowledge right now you are administering your life in a way that allows us to release our old life Amen. into death. 
I pray right now for everyone, even those physically dying right now. There is someone right now that is physically dying that we know of. And Lord Jesus, we pray for this man right now. Yes, Lord. We pray for each one of us right now that you would renew our minds to receive the truth that all the lies right now would be covered by the precious blood of Jesus right now. Just quench the old lies that came from the old self that are still playing right now and let your truth rise up. Renew our mind right now, I pray, release of the old self to receive the second Adam, to receive even our new body right now in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Lord, we pray also over the effect of artificial intelligence and the way that we unsubscribe and there's even more that come at us god you know the battles in our mind you know the battles to take hold and hook our flesh again so jesus we ask right now for a special grace a special grace right now against artificial intelligence against things that are actively sent by the devil as arrows in jesus name quench the flames quench them in our lives we pray in jesus name this week even give us a new ability to say no We receive that new ability to say no. Amen.